1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: Welcome in to the Autzen Audible's podcast Monday edition, the final edition of the regular season. That sounds incredibly crazy to say, but here we are. Uh, Matt Brame, Eric Scopa, Jared Mack on this Monday show. And we're coming off a long, long weekend where Oregon late into the night, Saturday, Hold off a big win against Utah, and there's going to be a lot of discussion today in the mailbag from what happened Saturday night.
0: Yeah, I think this is going to be a fun one. We've got a lot of variety of questions here, some reviewing Saturday stuff, some looking ahead, some kind of big picture questions. But we're going to start with a question from at program guy. What what adjustments play calling personnel will need to be made if Nix is still immobile next week, understanding that Oregon State will have a full week to repair for what they saw from Oregon this past Saturday. I thought this was a really good question um, because I think one of the things that Oregon's, played to Oregon's advantage, if you want to call it an advantage, was the uncertainty all week about what was going to happen with Bo, what the quarterback situation would be, what he'd be able to do. In fact, the three of us, even having watched a little bit of practice, didn't have a super clear picture of kind of what Bo's availability may or may not be. And again, what he'd be able to do as a runner. Well, that's all on film now. Dan and Bo both have even said on record we weren't going to run him much. Like, that's, our, that's already information that is very much readily available for Oregon State when they're game planning for this. So I think it is important to, uh, to kind of discuss out loud for us this week and obviously for the staff who are going to be making the decision. So we're, we're not going to be making the adjustments, but for the staff who are making it, to figure out kind of some alternatives because the run game didn't work very well against Utah, especially after the first half. I don't have the figures in front of me, but I think they had about 55 yards rushing for the game. I want to say most of those were in the first half, like a, a pretty a pretty heavy majority. And Knicks didn't run until you, – you got that information, Jared?
1: I sure do. Oregon had three total rushing yards in the second half, 56 in the first. Yeah, I was going to say. It felt yeah. like it was – that feels like about where I was going to guess if I was
0: forced to. So Utah adjusted. Oregon State will certainly adjust. And – it was only until the very final play when Bo kept it, dove forward to pick up that final first down that he even really had an option. I think to keep the football. So, and they and they said after the game that was like almost kind of like a, a Herculean effort on his part to actually take part of that. So, I think this is a a, a really. I don't have necessarily all the answers here. Um, I would say maybe uh, m- more wildcat that seemed to work. Uh, more th- m- more bring yes. the more, more Ty Thompson in to uh, to hand the ball off on reverses. That seemed to go really well. I would say let's do more of those things. Um, Obviously joking. But I I think that speaks to some of the difficulty of – those are kind of some of the wrinkles. Not to be defeatist at all and say Oregon can't figure this out because I trust Kenny Dillingham to be able to figure out some some interesting options here. But the kind of creative wrinkles we saw last week didn't really work, right? I mean the the Wildcat got stood up both times and the Ty Thompson – play was a debacle we're going to be we're going to go more in depth on that later in the show because we have a question about it but um you know th- this is now a matter of you're, you're really dealt a tough hand here and the opponent knows exactly what you've got they almost know your whole cards which utah didn't and now it's a matter of, of kind of figuring out some alternatives and um it seemed to me that runs off tackle were more successful than runs between the tackles so maybe maybe trying to figure out a little bit more of that, maybe spreading it out a little bit more with some screen stuff early on downs. I think those tended to work last game. I think Dante Thornton and Chris Hudson had a couple that were somewhat successful, also had a couple that got st- that st- got stood up. So, um, But no real easy answers. And as we established on our show on Saturday, Oregon State defensively is is one of the better units that the Ducks will face and um, will pose some problems. So no, I think this is a this is big question going into the week for me as well of – of kind of what do you do here? Because if I mean, unless Nick heals up real fast, which maybe he will, maybe he'll be able to do a little bit more, you are playing a little bit with a hand behind your back here.
1: I'd imagine Nick's can do a little bit more if you know coming into this Oregon State week. But this is still a, a huge problem. I mean, Utah during the second half was like, look, we're just going to put eight in the box, and if you guys decide to run, we're going to go tackle Noah and our or, or Bucky, and our guys are fast enough to drop back into coverage um and it, and it worked you know three rushing yards for oregon for a team that's averaging over almost 220 rushing yards a night that's really impressive by utah and you know it says it speaks a lot to about how important bo nix is to this offense and especially how important his legs and his feet are to this offense um and you know i'll, I'll give credit for to kenny dillingham for trying to think of wrinkles that might that might you know just dis- disrupt how utah's playing their defense um like eric mentioned they didn't work at all i think this week you know it's again we're not making the adjustments just like eric said but i I can i'll spitball here and i I would say that oregon's if i were them i would try to have more passes up the middle and try to bring the linebackers back and try to make sure that their coverage can't just sit down in in an eight-man box and just wait for them to run the ball Um, they did a really good job last week using screens as the running game Um, that's like something that, that that teams and offenses and coordinators have done since, I don't know, since the dawn of time, basically, since the spread offense was really a nationwide thing of using their screen game to, you know, to implement some runs when you can't really get the ball running. Um, but I think if Nick's has the, the leg strength and the capability to drive off of his back foot, which I think we're all thinking that his right foot is the issue here, which would be his back foot in this situation. Um, If he has enough leg strength and that ankle strength whatever the case may be to drive off that back foot and throw the ball over the middle i think that's where oregon should be going and it doesn't have to be 20 30 yards down the field but zone busters zone finders where troy franklin or whoever it is goes right up the middle and and kind of sits in the zone and gets the linebackers to come back just gives them some sense of hey i have to be accountable for a potential wide receiver behind me and not just looking forward and you know, headhunting basically as Utah's defense was last week. Um, I think, again, it's still impressively remarkable that Nix was able to do what he did last week and Oregon's offense was able to score 20 points considering Utah just did not respect their run game at all. Um, And again, I think something has to do with it of Alex Forsyth being out. I think just like Nix is able to check into things, Alex Forsyth sees the game from center a little differently than Ryan Walk. Um, so I think that might have helped Oregon's run game. I don't think it would have done much, but it might have done something. So that's another uh, adjustment, like, adjustment, quote unquote, that Oregon could look to against Oregon State. Um, overall, I just think that they should you know, just try to keep the defense true to their passing game more than they did last week against Utah.
2: Utah statistically has a worse defense than Oregon State does. So the challenge, at least on paper statistically, is – going to get harder um this week we're gonna say it's defense is pretty good um now i don't think they have the players that utah has so their scheme is doing some stuff that that makes up for it um but i i anticipate we're gonna see a lot of five wide type stuff with bow and and it's it's kind of one of those well why are you going five wide when you don't have a mobile quarterback and it's because that's your only real counter to forcing your opponent to adapt to what you're doing. Because if Oregon State or if Utah had gone eight guys in the box when Oregon went five wide, Nix is, is good enough to quickly get the ball out to a wide open receiver and get nine, 12 yards. Defense just can't afford to do that. And so it's it's not going to surprise me if, if Nix is very similar to – what he was like this past weekend, which I kind of think it's going to be very much the same. Um, I don't think he's going to drastically improve where all of a sudden he's a threat in the run game. Um, I, I think we're going to see a lot of throws. And I'd also be curious to know when the game plan was put in for Bo Nicks last week against Utah. When did they definitively know what, he could do when he could for sure play and how much, cause a game plan with Ty Thompson and a game plan with Bo Nix limited in mobility are two entirely different things in my opinion. Um, So maybe that opens up the playbook a little bit more knowing, Hey, he can play. This is what we can do. We can scheme a little bit more here and there for Oregon state but for maybe for Utah. It was just a very last minute install. Of, of just known plays that they could do out of out of empty backfield but it, it's going to impact things um the running game it, it's you know the, the zone read stuff just did not work because there was no respect you didn't have to worry about Bo running the football that's why he got the first down on, on that third down very end of the game because everyone was so keyed in on bucky getting the football um it's going to be interesting, and this is another week where you you say, "Hey, Kenny Dillingham, if you're a future head coach, this is where you prove it."
0: I don't think we really touched on the poetic nature of back-to-back weeks needing to get a yard, and the first week the quarterback didn't keep it when he probably should have, and the second week the quarterback did keep it when he had an all game. Just a just a thought I had as we were discussing yeah. kind of that play and that sequence. It's actually kind of a a cool moment if you want to look at it from that perspective. Yeah, I don't think any real easy answers. This, week. this is going to be really interesting to see how this game on Saturday goes. I think getting past Utah um, checks a lot of boxes. Oregon State's going to be a really stiff competition this week, and, and we'll see what we learn and what we're able to share from an injury perspective about what, how Bo looks as the week goes. I, I don't know if we'll have similar restrictions to last week or not, um, but we'll have an idea on that um, following Tuesday's practice. Okay, uh, next one from at Ota Poppin. Dan's decision to kick a field goal at the end of the half rather than go for it, as he did against UW, somewhat mirrored DeBoer's learning from the over-aggression in the UW-Oregon State game. How do you view Lanning's growth as a game manager throughout this year? Um, I think a thing that really stood out, and we're going to get to part of that later on another question, but that really stood out on rewatch to me was... Lanning's willingness to kick field goals when Whittingham chose not to on several occasions in a three-point game, or a game that would have been altered later if they would have, and I know part of it has to do with what I'll get to later, is because we're going to have a, a a bit of a Camden Lewis appreciation segment. Is Utah wasn't confident in its kicker, but I thought Oregon deciding to, I mean, and I think part of this, not to kind of cut myself off here, but just as I'm thinking this through. Part of this has to do with the fact that I think Oregon's offense realized points are going to be at a, at a premium in this game when you realize how much are we going to really get out of Bo. And so the, the shift probably is somewhat deserving credit, right? Lanning talks about being a lifelong learner, talks about the growth mindset but also just of understanding how this game is different than a lot of games you've had this season that are played in the forties where you're going to score 42 points or 45 points. And I think you get to a certain understanding in this game, both both based upon Utah's defensive acumen, but also based upon some of your limitations offensively with a quarterback who's nowhere near hundred percent, that points are just going to be worth getting. So go get as many points as possible. But I, I actually really think you go back and look at it. Those two decisions to kick field goals are spots that sometimes in the past Dan might have said roll the dice let's go for it and that might have and if they had and failed a couple of times they might not have won this game so I I do think there's because we're going to be critical of some stuff in a moment but I also think it's worth being at least acknowledging that yeah the decision to kick a couple field goals while not as aggressive as we've seen at times this year felt kind of like the, I, th- I, think in retrospect you feel pretty good about those decisions, and obviously the results back that up. But, um, you know, Utah not kicking field goals, and again not having a kicker they're confident in, really played a big role in this game. When you go back and kind of look at the drive charts in the second half, in particular, where they had the ball, I know they I think their last uh, fourth down turnover and downs, they didn't get the ball to field goal range. But the one prior to that, where the where uh, Rising short armed it on the pass to Kincaid they're very much in field goal range there where if they're able to put that through, the game is, is, is now tied. Um, the choice not to do that in part because of the lack of confidence in the kicker, but also I think of being aggressive and going to go win the game. Not that these are bad things, but that choice was really significant on the final outcome, especially when you look at what Oregon's offense wasn't able to do in the second half. And you kind of wonder to
1: yourself, Utah takes points there. How does the rest of the game play out? Yeah, real quick before I, before I answer, shout out to Austin who asked the question. Everybody go give him a listen on KWVA. Good to see you in the box on Saturday. But I think this is a, a you know, it was a pretty clear example of, of of Dan Lanning's understanding and learning of the game, his growth mindset that he always talks about of not going for it on the four, on multiple fourth-down opportunities. But at the same time, I think these are just different game circumstances. Like Eric mentioned, this was an opportunity for Oregon to put points on the board when both defenses were, were playing really well. Um, I think, uh, you know, Utah and, and Cam Rising had probably like the worst game of his Utah career, or at least like one or two of them. Um, and Kyle Whittingham understood that. Yeah, well, maybe he's, he's not really going, but Oregon's struggling with covering Dalton Kincaid and that we could get us something on fourth and short. And they and they did. They had the perfect play, um, but Rising just completely whiffed on the throw, which was very surprising in, in the press box. But ultimately, um, yeah, you know, it was the right decision for Dan to kick those field goals, put points on the board. You're very limited what you can do offensively with Knicks. Yeah, there's there's probably a chance that Knicks could have uh, you know held it twice during that game and kept it for one of the yards, but. Those fourth downs were a bit longer than that. Um, the third down and long that that Nick's ultimately converted was a long one yard, for what it's worth. Um, it was just such a surprise. I would I would imagine for or, or excuse me Utah's defense and their defensive coordinator to see Nick's keep it after you know fifty something plays where he didn't even come look like he was going to keep it. Um, but overall, yeah, I think Dan learns. I think he's learned from his Washington mistakes. I think he's learned that that was a bit too aggressive that points on the board in that game would have mattered as well because it was 37 34. um instead of going forward on some fourth downs maybe you try to kick a field goal um which he tried to uh, i'll give him the credit but then again it was you know a long one at the end of the half um but overall i think that this game was more of a how both offenses were playing was way more of a decision maker on whether or not they take three or seven points because last week against washington everybody was taking seven points because that's what you really needed what what it really looked like during the game in order to win this week three points because of how well both defenses were playing three points looked like that could be the difference maker which it ended up being but i I do think that dan is growing overall and the more times he's put into these scenarios where it's like well three or seven here like we can either get really aggressive or we can just take the points um the more times he's put into those scenarios dan's going to learn even more He's going to learn better. He's going to learn faster. He's going to be able to make those decisions three or seven, go for it or not, even quicker in the next couple of games. So uh, that's all
2: I got. Do we even know? See, I don't agree that the field goal in the first half was Oregon automatically choosing to go for a field goal because they were lined up to go for it on fourth down. And... The play did not get called in time and they had to burn their final timeout to avoid a delay of game penalty. And then when that timeout, when they came out of the timeout, they sent out the kicking unit to kick the field goal because they didn't have any more timeouts. There was like twenty four seconds left in that first in that second quarter. Had they gotten the first down, they could have called the timeout and then be able to throw a couple passes into the end zone. Um, Cause they were lined up to go for it. And then the delay the of game penalty almost bit them in the butt and they had to call the timeout. So the first one, I'm not sure that they were originally intending to kick a field. goal. I'd love to know that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, the second mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Like that was, that was the right call. You know, things, it was clear. The offense was not moving. You had an opportunity to get points. Um, I thought the first half one, go for it. You know, that's, that's where you know your your aggressiveness has been all season long and if they had put in a touchdown there just before the end of the half you know instead of being up 17 to 3 they're up 21 to 3 and the game feels even wider from a margin perspective but you know it ended up kicking a field goal and they ended up winning by three both times
0: no it's a fair critique Matt. of i don't know exactly because Bo actually did look frustrated. Like sometimes you see a team take it down, the, the, you know, the, almost to zero on the play clock. They take the timeout, and it's like a, oh, okay, that was intentional to maybe try to get the defense offside or something. They didn't try a, like a hard count. They just didn't get set up properly. So I would like to know maybe more of what happened there, um, if if maybe that was a deliberation on the sideline of, of like, what do we do here? Or if that was a, an inability to get the play in properly. I mean, because it it could be both. It could also be that they were really going back and forth. On the timeline. Do we take the points? Do we not take the points? Um, and they ultimately obviously took the points. But yeah, that, that was kind of a, there was maybe more nuance to that one than the second one, which I thought was just taking points when you needed to take points in a tie game. All right. Um, third one, and I don't know how long we're going to go on this topic, just but, I'm going to read a quote and we'll we'll kind of move on if we need to. But from at Taylor underscore Nick underscore L, you are up 17-3 with all the momentum in the third quarter and you put your cursed backup quarterback into the game to fumble the handoff and give up a touchdown. <clears throat> Perplexing. I don't think the play call was fumble it, give up a touchdown. Pretty confident in that. But – I also don't know a lot more because, Dan, I think, Matt, you asked the question. Dan was asked, like, straight up about this one. And there are times this year where he's gone into pretty great detail about the thought process behind an aggressive call or something that was a little out of the ordinary. He basically chose not to. Um, His answer, you guys can critique that one. That was poor. It didn't work out well, obviously. I'm glad that didn't cost us the game, but great learning moment for me and our staff. So clearly, the intent there was, I think, to do a little bit of what we – talked about earlier which was to kind of throw the defense off throw something at them that they weren't expecting the run game had gotten maybe a little bit they were concerned it was going to get stagnant <clears throat> and try to mix it up um didn't work you put the ball you know i think it is weird because i you know i think if you look at ty's season here things have not gone well so many of them have just been kind of odd circumstantial plays though if you go back and watch like Tip screen passes that get caught eight yards behind the line of scrimmage. A ball that's well-thrown that hits off a chest pad goes into the air and gets intercepted. Um, uh, The weird one in BYU game where where ultimately they end up going back to Knicks because it's like a pass to Stephen McGee or something that ends up going, or Bucky and ends up going like 20 yards backwards because it's not caught and it's a backwards pass. Like All of this stuff is just like these weird things. So calling Ty kind of cursed – feels sort of like strangely applicable, even though I don't know if I like believe that that's a real thing, but it just feels like every time he comes on the field, like I I feel like Ty has a lot of natural ability, but some of this stuff doesn't have anything to do with like, some of it just feels like weird happenstance every single time. And it is getting to the point here where you're kind of like, okay, one, one or two times, maybe it's just kind of like weird, weird things. But now we've got a trend of just like every time Ty's on the field, Something really bad happens, and a lot of the times it doesn't. It feels like almost outside of his execution, like or it's like a it's such a subtle thing. So, and I don't know if you want to go back and watch that. I I wasn't sure who takes full responsibility on that one. It looked like both Ty and Dante. Like that was just not a cleanly run play, which also gives yeah. a question of why? Why do you have your backup in the game? I will say it sounds like he was taking first team reps all week. Obviously, they obviously they wanted to get an opportunity for him to. So he had, he had plenty of practice experience. Maybe they're trying to find a way to kind of maximize and take advantage of the fact that he was he was ready to go. But boy, I, I think there's that's a real head scratcher in general in terms of why why do that when you, as Nick says here, you do have all the momentum. They just forced a Utah punt. Could have had a chance to go down there and, and add to a lead. Instead, the
1: opposite takes place. Yeah, I mean it was it was boneheaded. I don't. I don't think anybody's going to understand why and Dan's not going to tell us why. And maybe that's like an indirect, like Kenny said, we're going to do this. I didn't agree with it. We did it. And then that's what the result was. Um, But yeah, I mean, I've I've rewatched it a couple of times. It seems like there's, it's just mistakes by both uh, Ty and Dante. Um, Ty looks like he was too close to do a pitch. It was better just as a handoff. Um, You know, Dante didn't keep his eyes on the ball because he was, looking at the Utah defensive back who was, you know, five yards in front of him, waiting for him to run to his direction so he could blow up the play. Um, it just wasn't going to work no matter what, even if that was really well executed. Uh, Utah just didn't seem fooled. Um, just re-watching it, there's, again, that defensive back was just sitting there waiting to eat lunch, and that was Dante Thornton. Um, again, yeah, just a, just a boneheaded thing. I don't really have any more else to say about it just because it was – very, you know, it was consequential at the time, but ended up being inconsequential. I just don't think we'll be seeing that play again with with Ty Thompson, Dante Thornton anytime soon.
2: This wasn't a bad play by Ty Thompson. This was a bad coaching decision by the staff. And Dan said it, it's up to us to critique it. It was stupid. It was dumb. Like, don't do that. You had all the momentum in the world, and you put a, you know you change so many variables. You have a different center that you normally have in the game and Ryan block at center. You have your backup quarterback and Ty Thompson in the game, and you have a receiver who's already fumbled once in this game. Um, and you're throwing him, you're getting him the football. Um, just. It, it, it doesn't line up. This is just when you're being ultra aggressive for no real reason. And. It was clear Bo wasn't hurt or dealing with anything. It was just, hey, let's put Ty Thompson in there. It didn't make any sense, and hopefully we don't ever see that ever again. Those are the growth spur- you know, spurts that we have to see with the young coaching staff, and unfortunately you see them sometimes in some very crazy high-pressure situations that aren't good. Uh, that's all I have to say on that one. Let's go to a break, um, and when we come back we'll continue the All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. Uh, three questions in, a couple more to go to wrap this one up.
0: Yeah, this this one's going to be kind of a carryover from what we talked about earlier with our second question, but from at Global Lens, why do we take Camden Lewis for granted? Hashtag Austin Audible's. And I, I realized having listened to our podcast on Saturday, reacting to the game, we didn't talk about Camden at all. Not that he deserved like a full segment like a Dante Thornton, but as we established earlier, the decision to kick field goals when Utah didn't ended up being significant. And I think that goes back to the fact that Utah's kicker had missed his first kick, his second kick. Gosh, that's like about as close of a make as you're going to see, like it just slid through the goalposts. And so Utah's Kyle Whittingham, who again, as, as I think I that was really notable landing said, I have more respect than, Whittingham than any other coach in this conference. Like That was that stood out to me as a, as a post-game. That's not a thing you have to say. Obviously, you're going to be complimentary of your opponent, but that's opening up all the other coaches of the conference to go, oh, uh, what about want- me? Yeah, well, come on. What about me, buddy? Um, I think Kyle was sitting there going, I don't have any confidence in this kicker making field goals, and that's why twice later on in the game they were aggressive and didn't come away with any points because they didn't try the field goal. Um, I mean, there was, there was one at the end of the first half where they went it on fourth and four from like the 11. That's a chip shot. You think you should take that one. But I think they figured it, it's not quite – we're not as confident in the kicking game to do so. And as we established earlier, Oregon settled for field goals twice. Um, I know they prefer to press their luck. And, and, and going forward, I'll be curious to see what they do. But just having a kicker that is reliable in college is such a weapon. He's not a weapon to kick the ball – 50 60 years he's not or 60 yards he's not uh brett maher for the cowboys who can apparently just make 60 yarders like over and over again i don't know if you guys watched that the other day but that was pretty dang impressive like he doesn't have the leg strength to be a weapon to stretch the field to to, you know they tried it his one missed kick this year was a 54 yarder at the end of the half that was not even close but he is so reliable right now from 45 and in i mean he's um over the last two seasons he's made 25 of 29 kicks Uh, One of the misses was a blocked kick last year um, against Utah. Uh, The other miss is a 54-yarder right at the end of the half that he described as kind of the equivalent of a kicking Hail Mary. You know, it's just kind of, we're going to take it. The clock's going to run out. We'll try it. Like, this is probably outside of my range maybe in this circumstance, but we'll give it a go. So, you know, he's been basically close to automatic, and I think we take him for granted because that was not the case early on in his career. He was the opposite. He was 10 of 18 to start his career on field goal attempts, he missed some pretty, pretty easy ones too, and like, it never looked pretty. I, I just think he's taken such a big step. He was the PAP 12 second team kicker last year. I think he'll be first or second this year. Um, you know, he's one of the more accurate kickers in the country. He hasn't missed a PAT. I think he's fifty six for fifty six. Um, but I think, you know, I think a lot of credit is deserving to go his direction because it's a great. First off, it's a great storyline of him turning his career around where it was really ugly. He got benched. Remember, remember when, remember when we had the cattle monster, was like this big storyline during the during the COVID season. Well, now Camden's the kicker and the cattle monster is off at Colorado State as the backup. Like he's not even the starting kicker. So you just kind of look at the way those players' careers have gone. It's it's bizarre because in 2020, I think everybody felt like Lewis should be the one to go somewhere else and Cattleman should be the one to stick, but. Morgan Finn should be happy because he's been extremely reliable. And the fact that he went out and hit both field goals, not saying they were difficult field goals, ultimately played a big factor in the result of this game. Because if he misses those or if the staff doesn't feel confident in sending him out there, who knows what happens. If, because we saw on the other end what happens when you aren't confident in your kicker.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think the over overarching theme of this is just how how much Camden has persevered and just to go through his ups and downs of 2019 and then the COVID season, especially those ups and downs to come out ahead and be a second team, all conference kicker last season and then be nearly perfect this year, other than his his hail Mary attempt. Uh, you know, it's, that was a concern, I guess coming into the season was Can Camden replicate the 2021 season. Um, he's done that and more. Uh, I, I mean, I think, taking kickers or, or potentially punters for granted. I think it's just cause they're, they're special teams guys. Like they have one job on the field and that's to, if you're a kicker is like either to kick it through the end zone or make a field goal. And for a punter is to, you know, hopefully get it inside the 10 or the 15. Um, so I think that's why a lot of people take that for granted. Um, you know, maybe I should ask a, a Baltimore Raven fan with Justin Tucker. Um, I don't, I, I don't know, but but what Camden has been able to do this season and provide that kicking option for Oregon is just tremendous. It gives Dan Landing that option, like Eric was going through, like we were all going through. It gives him that option to be conservative on the fourth down and just take the points because you know more often than not that kick's going through the uprights and you're coming away with three points. And like Eric mentioned, you know, Kyle Whittingham didn't have that opportunity. Well, he did, but he wasn't confident in that opportunity because maybe more often than not, the kick is not going through the upright. So what Camden's been able to do really helps this team, really helps this offense. He's always been in good spirits. Um, he's a pleasure to talk to whenever we get the chance. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm, kind of, I'm just kind of happy for him, for his ability to go through those ups and downs the last couple of years and come out on the other side and do really well. So I, I don't know. I think oh, to basically just to answer the question, I think people take you know Camden for granted because he's a kicker. The special teams guy, but special teams players are people too.
2: He's 25 for 29 in the last two seasons. He missed three last year, he went 13 of 16. He's missed one, like Eric said. He's second in the conference in field goal percentage. Um, and it's only because the Stanford kicker hasn't missed, and Stanford's kicker is not going to be the all conference kicker. I can tell you that right now, or he shouldn't be at least. Um, Lewis is, I mean, I I think it sums it up perfectly where I was rewatching the game yesterday and he came trotting out to kick a kick and the announcer says he's, you know, Mr. Reliable. Oregon has the the kicker that's reliable. You always can count on him making the kick. And you couldn't say that in 2020. And I think that's just a sign of his perseverance of getting through some tough mental things that he's talked about, uh, some in on-field type stuff that he's had to get through. And I, I hope he comes back. He's got one more year if he wants it. He was not honored at senior day. Um He's listed as a junior. Maybe he decides to come back and we get a third year of Camden Lewis we get uh, kind of an encore tour for his career. I get the
0: sense he's going to. Um, he didn't say it directly, but he did say – after the game, it was cool that Karsten's last snap at Otson was a field goal that ended up being, and he was clear that wasn't a game-winning field goal in his mind, even though it was a it ended up you know resulting in the final margin. But it came with 11 minutes to go in the fourth quarter, and a ton of stuff had to happen after. But I thought I I thought he kind of tipped his hand; I didn't ask it outright if he was going to come back, but he tipped his hand to me a little bit of being like that was great. Karsten's last snap at Otson was. Was one that resulted in a big win over Utah um, on Senior Day, so that kind of, to me, indicated he'll, he'll be back. But I guess we'll have to, to to sweat it out and see what happens with with Camden.
1: I got one more thing that um, just popped into my brain. You know, Dan and Dan and Company when they came in, they brought in like a million kickers. They brought in guys who had field goal experience and, and Boyle and uh, I think Boyle. I don't think actually Minimal. had field goal experience. Bales had field goal experience. You know, these, like, they brought in competition for Camden to either take out the kickoff or to take the field goal, and, you know, he won the field goal job. Andrew Boyle eventually won the kickoff competition. So, again, that's another credit to him of persevering and sticking it to him. Like, yeah, I, I'm, I was here before you. Like, I'm going to battle with you guys, you know, but he maintains great relationships with all the special teams players. It's um, you know, just, again, another credit to him. Yeah.
0: I- I'm, I'm, I'm happy we do a fun little special team segment uh, because I think Camden deserves it. And this is one of the few special teams units that has been consistently good because kickoffs have had problems. Punting has had problems. return game has been relatively underwhelming. Um, but field goal kicking, extra points, they've done their job. They're almost at 100% success, rate, So credit to them.
2: Uh, if he lap- comes back – real quick, real quick. If he comes back – the field goal record for oregon in a career is aiden schneider of 51. he has 35 right now it's conceivable he could knock in two or three more in the next couple of games that oregon plays and he comes back granted it's with five aiden did it in four but he could he could break that record
0: i'm excited to write my uh Camden Lewis takes a spot on Oregon's Mount Rushmore of field goal kickers column in uh, in January of 2024. <laughs> no, that's a that's good information, and it and it doesn't surprise me too much. Uh, I remember doing not to go down too much of a trend, I remember doing a real deep dive into the field goal success and like the best kickers in Oregon history. I think Aiden Schneider is like quite clearly the top guy if you just look at all the the stats that matter, but. Camden could, in theory, go down as one of the better kickers Oregon has had, and who would have expected that to be a a possibility after 2019 and 2020 when everyone thought he was not very good? Um, All right, last one from at Jamie Fretz. Fellas, if I were to have told you before the season that losing CJ to the NFL and Dye's decision to transfer to USC would result in Oregon football majorly upgrading at running back, and it wouldn't be Byron Cardwell would you call me crazy? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Before the season, probably I would have been pretty confident in what the running backs were, because I think and, and and that it might not be Cardwell. Cause we were we were I had a conversation with somebody and I we've mentioned this before back in like July that was like got like these these transfer running backs are studs. Like Bucky's awesome and I was told Whittington could be one of the best running backs in the conference. Was something somebody that is close to the program told me. So like I was, I was kind of on the on board that these guys could be pretty darn good. But if you would have told me back in spring or at, right after the decisions by both Verdell and Die happened that Oregon was going to be better at running back than they were the last couple of years, and it wasn't Cardwell, I would have probably like, nah, it's pretty unlikely. I and mean, I, I think, and I think, you know, I was sitting there last night rewatching the game again, going. Pretty cool what they've got at running back right now. Like this is this is this is a legitimately one of the best duos Oregon has had. I know it wasn't a fantastic game from Bucky or Noah statistically, and we've already run through the numbers, three rush yards in the second half. You need more out of that. I don't know how much really was more for them to have had, also, to be honest. I think they did kind of as much as they could given what they were faced with with, with Utah selling out there. But Oregon has two absolute dudes at running back. And I was looking at Pro Football Focus's Pac-12 uh, running back grades. And Irving is number one in the conference. And Irving, and uh, uh, Whittington is number eight. So Pac-12, according to PFF, among, among the Pac-12 running backs, Oregon has two of the best eight in the conference. And, um, and again, they are unique in, in skill set. But I think they really play well together. And I think we've started to see a little bit of a trend here of late where Irving starts the game, is obviously so dynamic, but Whittington kind of feels like the guy you want out there at the end to sort of run the clock out. If he, if he remembers where he is on the field when he's sliding, a small critique. That was just a that was just a silly, a really smart play executed poorly, is what I would say. Like a great idea. Get down, end the game, but make sure you're past the sticks first. But in general, I I I agree that Oregon is upgraded here. Um, Travis Dye is awesome. I think Travis was having potentially one of uh, the better seasons a USC running back has had in a minute. You think about USC over the last six, you know, obviously the last 25 over the, over the history of college triple USC has had some absolute superstar running backs. You go down the line, kind of been absent there. And Travis had kind of revitalized a little bit of that. he was going to run for probably 1200, 1300 yards before his injury. Um, so rough on him to go down. But I think the combination of, Uh, Irving and Whittington, to me, is superior than what the highs of Dye and Verdell had been in past years, in part because Verdell couldn't stay on the field, Um, and Dye proved to be pretty multidimensional his final season, but at times early on in his career was a really pretty one-dimensional, kind of a one-note guy. Um, Don't want to take too much from Travis Dye because I still think he's an awesome player, and what he did last year was uber- Uber impressive, I don't want to totally take away, but I, I do think Oregon's current backfield, I would take that over last year's backfield, and it is surprising to a certain degree that Byron Cardwell has had no role. I was expecting he might be their third guy, fourth guy, the fact that he's seemingly not a part of it at all, some of it, I don't know, I don't even want to go down the Byron Cardwell rabbit hole because it is what it is. I think most people kind of picked up that he be, might be transferring, I don't know if that's hundred percent. I haven't confirmed it, but that seems to be what people think. Um, but yeah, his lack of involvement and the fact that they're still so impactful and effective is, is also pretty impressive.
1: Uh, you know, I easily would take this year's backfield to last year's backfield. Um, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know, I'm a running back hater. Don't pay them in the NFL. Don't drop them in the first round, build a good offensive line and you will have a good running back. Um, regardless jamie to answer your question yes i would have called you crazy mostly because it wouldn't have been without byron carpool i was a huge byron carpool guy i still am i still think he's really talented i won't go down the rabbit hole either we will probably eventually i don't know maybe find out one day but until that day um i really liked the way he ran uh, i thought he ran hard powerful it was a quick guy but also capable of moving um you know bucky and noah are just those that have all of those characteristics but they're even better um, but I mean, if you watch Bucky on film at Minnesota last season when he transferred in, you're like, oh, this guy can, he's got some wiggle, he's got some movement. Um, but when you watch it in person and you see during the games this season, you know, it's just so much different than than anything in the last couple of years. Uh, Travis Dye could wiggle a little bit. CJ Verdell was very s- straight line drive. If he had an open, if he had an open window and he could run straight as fast as he could, he was a really hard guy to bring down. But Bucky's a really hard guy to bring down no matter what the scenario is. And as is Noah Whittington, who like Eric mentioned, seems to kind of be like the late game punisher, um, which I think is interesting because he's like the smaller of the two backs between he and Bucky. Um, but, and another thing, you know, the last couple of games or specifically the last two games, Oregon's running back rotation has shortened uh, Noah or excuse me, Sean Dollars and Jordan Dames have both not played these last two games or at least not taken a snap or, a rush attempt in the backfield um they haven't gone to the 14 j package a lot so jordan james is kind of you know waiting for his opportunity there but um dollars hasn't been out on third downs recently it's really just been bucky and and whittington um which is interesting because going into the season it was like yeah we're just gonna run five running backs that was what the coaching staff said and you know we tried to get them to talk about well This like, do you guys like this? Do you like only getting, you know, 20 snaps a night maybe? Um, But now it's just two guys. And I think those are the right two guys. I think, like, I I just am really impressed with this backfield, but I'm also really impressed with this offensive line. Um, they've, They've been able to make the holes for these guys. They've been able to keep Oregon's rushing attack, moving swimmingly from last or from the last couple of seasons where it's been such a dominant trend in Oregon's offense to continuing it through with Dan Lanning this year. Um, I just think it'll be interesting what it looks like next year.
2: I think they are an upgrade, yes. I think Bucky is the best back we've seen at Oregon since Royce Freeman. But I also think there was offensive scheme issues for the running backs that they had the last couple of seasons they tried to run out of the pistol forever and just these guys are not pistol running backs die and verdell. Um, and so I, I I would, I would love to see Verdell and die play in this offense. Just like we've said, I would have loved to see Justin Herbert play in this type of offense. I I think Oregon's offense and under Mario Cristobal was so just archaic that it limited everything. Um, And so while, yes, they are better, I would have called you crazy. I also think, as we're seeing with Travis Dye, the season that he was having um, and seeing what Trey Benson did at – is doing at Florida State, I I just think there was misuse of talent the last couple of seasons um, offensively at Oregon, and that impacted things as well.
0: Could be, Yeah. I mean, the offense wasn't pretty. Um, Trey Benson, it's weird. To, I don't know how, how much I'm going to put that in the coach. He just wasn't in the rotation for whatever reason. Like, but no, I, mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I definitely like Oregon's scheme a lot more now than I did last year too. I mean, like, there's no question about that. So, um, but no, I, I think Oregon should be really excited about the habit running back. I think I've talked to a couple of friends who had thought that Irving and Whittington were both like senior transfers. and I'm like, no, they – they're both
2: sophomores. Well, I think I think there's a chance. I mean, this is just me speculating. Nothing I'm hearing. I, I would be, I wouldn't be surprised if Bucky Irvin goes pro um, after this season. Well,
0: I, he, I, can't, he can't go after he this. Year.
2: He's, a, he's a true sophomore. It's only second oh, year. I thought this was his third year. I know he was a sophomore, but I thought the COVID his year was third year. Well, then he's he's here for another year, so Oregon doesn't have to worry about that. Yeah,
0: he's definitely got another year. Yeah. Whittington is in his third and, and uh, Yeah, I
2: knew Whittington was. I thought Bucky was in the same instance just to, to COVID, the COVID the year messes everything up. I hate the COVID year. The COVID year I now I guess I just assumed he was a third year sophomore because everybody's a third year sophomore.
0: It it makes it very difficult, especially senior day. And we're still like, usually after senior day, you have a really good idea of who's not going to be with the team any longer. And I really have no idea. No idea. There's a bunch of people that were, are, that are listed as seniors who didn't go. And there are all a bunch of people who are like 50 or juniors who did. So, uh, I mean,
2: Justin Flo is a freshman and could go this year if he wanted to.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love that. <laughs> uh, Sean dollars is like a 50 year sophomore. I mean, there's all mm-hmm. sorts of weird, weird things, but, uh, uh, yeah, no, they they're stuck with Bucky for another year, Matt. Unfortunately.
2: Oh but. well, that's a good stuck to have. <laughs>
0: let's end the podcast. All right, it's gonna do it for us. What? So let's end the podcast with "It's a good stuck to have." <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's gonna do it for us here on the Odds and uh podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. We'll be back Tuesday with a recap of what we learned from Dan Laning. We're working on getting up on someone from Beaver Blitz to come on the show this week as well to get you the preview. And then we'll also have our Friday edition where we make our predictions for this game at Oregon State. Until the next one, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast.
0: Talk to you later, folks. Peace.
2: On May 23rd,